Section 12 of the late Mattia Pascal by Luigi Pirandello, translated by Arthur Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Chapter 12. Papiano Gets My Eye. The tragedy of Orestes in a puppet theatre, Mr. Mays. Automatic dolls of new invention. At 8.30 this evening, Via dei Prefetti, number 54. Worth going to see, Mr. Mays. So the old gentleman Anselmo Paleari was enunciating to me from my doorway. The tragedy of Orestes, I answered. Yes, d'après Sophocle, so this flyer reads. Electra, I imagine. But listen, I've just thought of something. Supposing that, just at the climax, when the marionette representing Orestes is about to avenge his father's death on Agestos and his mother, someone should suddenly tear a hole in the paper ceiling over the stage. What would happen, do you think? I give up, said I, shrugging my shoulders. Why, just think it out, Mr. Mays. Orestes, of course, would be quite flabbergasted by that hole in the sky. Why? Let me finish. Orestes would be in the throes of his vengefulness, and intent on assuaging his thirst for blood. But lo, a rent in the sky. His eyes would turn up toward that, wouldn't they? And all sorts of evil influences would become apparent on the stage. He would droop and collapse. Orestes, in other words, would become Hamlet. The whole difference between the ancient theatre and the modern comes down to that, I assure you, Mr. Mays, to a rent in a paper sky. And he went away, pattering along the hall in his slippers. In just such a way, old Anselmo was wont to launch avalanches of thoughts from the foggy mountain tops of his moodiness. Their relevance to anything, their motivation, the connection between them, stayed up there in the clouds. For the person down below who had to dodge them, it was often difficult to understand just what they meant. But this notion of Orestes thrown off his pins by a hole suddenly torn in the sky stayed with me for a long time. Lucky marionettes, I sighed. The make-believe heaven over their heads is rarely torn asunder, and if it is, it can be glued together again. They don't need to worry. They know neither perplexity, nor inhibition, nor scruple, nor sorrow, nor anything. They can just sit still, enjoying their comedy, loving, respecting, admiring each other, never getting flustered, never losing their heads, because their characters and their actions are all proportioned to the blue roof that covers them. And the prototype of these marionettes, my dear Mr. Anselmo, you have right here in your own house, in the person of that precious son-in-law of yours, Mr. Terenzio Papiano. Could any marionette be better satisfied than he is with the pasteboard sky snugly stretched above his head? The comfortable and tranquil dwelling place of a deity who bestows with a lavish hand, ready to close his eyes beforehand and to raise his hand in forgiveness afterwards, sleepily repeating after every sharp deal, I, the Lord thy God, help those who help themselves. Your precious son-in-law, Mr. Terencio Papiano, certainly helps himself, my dear Anselmo. Life for him is just one sharp turn after another. He has his finger in every pie, enterprising, jovial, enthusiastic, full of gumption and go. Forty years old was Papiano, tall of stature, sinewy of limb, inclined toward baldness, with a suggestion of grey in the heavy moustache he wore under his nose, a fine expressive nose with nostrils all a-quiver. Grey eyes also, sharp, restless, as restless as his hands. He saw everything with those eyes. He touched everything with those fingers. He would be talking with me, for instance, 
but in some way i don't know how he would see that adriana busy with her cleaning away off behind him was having difficulty in getting a piece of furniture into place again excuse me he would say like a flash and then run to his sister-in-law and take the business out of her hands look girl this is the way we do it see and he would dust it off himself shove it into place again himself and come hurrying back to me or he would notice that his brother who suffered from attacks of epilepsy was about to have a spell he would run to him tap him on the cheeks tweak the end of his nose blow on his face and call scipione scipione till he brought the boy around again there's no telling what fun i should have gotten out of such a man had i not had that blessed skeleton in my closet a fact this latter of which papiano became aware or at least suspicious in no time at all mr mays this mr mays that a veritable bombardment of adulation yet always underneath the compliment a line out to catch me and get me to say something definite about myself i came to feel that every remark every question of his however commonplace however obvious concealed a trap for me and i meantime would be anxious not to show the least reserve in order not to increase his mistrust though i must say my annoyance at the servile ceremonious harassing inquisition he held me subject to prevented me from concealing my real feelings very well my resentment came also from two secret causes within one was this i had never done anything wrong i had never harmed a living soul yet i felt compelled to be ever on my guard as though i were an outlaw with no title whatever to being left alone the other i refused to admit even to myself and my suppression of it made its action more subtly virulent inside me i kept cursing in my own mind you ass but pack up your things and clear out why put up with this infernal bore it was of no avail i did not go away i could not go away and i knew that i never would the interior struggle i fought to refuse recognition of my love for adriana prevented me as a logical corollary to this insincerity with myself from considering the consequences of my abnormal status in life in connection with that passion so i just kept on from day to day puzzled perplexed restless irritated fidgeting in constant uneasiness though preserving a smiling countenance toward other people on all that i had overheard that night while hiding behind my window shutters i had secured no further light it seemed that the bad impression papiano had received of me from whatever the caporale woman told him had vanished with our first introduction he tormented me with his devious questioning and it's true but certainly with no intention disguised or otherwise to get me out of the house on the contrary he was doing everything he could to keep me as a rumor well what was he up to then since his return adriana had become morose and gloomy again treating me with a cold distant aloofness as she had at first in the presence of others at least silvia caporale always addressed papiano with lei the formal word for you but he irrepressible rogue thee'd her and thou'd her blatantly even calling her rea silvia once for a good pun i could not grasp the true significance of his manner toward the woman a mixture of raillery and intimacy at the same time that drunken red-nosed slattern certainly commanded little respect from the indecorum of the life she led but on the other hand she should not have been treated that way by a man wholly unrelated to her one evening there was a full moon and the night was as bright as day i perceived her from my window sitting sad and solitary on the balcony she adriana and i had met there rarely since papiano came 
and never with the same pleasure as formerly for he inevitably joined us and did the talking for us all with the idea that i might perhaps learn something interesting from her by catching her in that mood of dejected relaxation i decided to have a talk with her as usual in going out of my room i found papiano's brother coiled on the same trunk in the hallway did he spend his time there in that uncomfortable position of his own choice or had he been stationed there to watch me signorina caporale was weeping when i arrived on the balcony she refused to talk at first on the excuse of a severe headache but shortly she seemed to make up her mind all of a sudden and turning straight toward me and holding out her hand she asked are you a real friend of mine if you are kind enough to grant me such a privilege i answered with a bow oh no no fine language please mr mays i need a friend a real friend just at this moment you ought to understand for you are alone in the world as i am of course you are a man and it's different for a man oh if you only knew mr mays if you only knew wherewith she bit at the handkerchief she was holding in one hand to keep from weeping and that remedy not proving successful she began tearing it angrily into strips a woman an ugly woman and an old woman she cried that's what i am three misfortunes that can never be helped why do i go on living anyway is it as bad as all that i asked to say something don't be so downhearted signorina why do you talk that way because she exclaimed but then she stopped unable or at least unwilling to finish her sentence please tell me i encouraged if a friend can be of any use to you she carried the tattered handkerchief to her eyes it would be much better if i could die she groaned with a note of such complete dejection that i was deeply moved never indeed will i forget the lines of anguish that formed around her thin ill-shaped lips as she said the words nor the quivering of her chin under its scattering of ugly black hair but i can't even die she finally resumed oh no mr mays what could you do for me nothing neither could anybody else a few kind words perhaps a little pity but that's all i am alone in the world and i must stay here to be treated well you probably have noticed how and they have no right to you know they have no right to i'm not living on their charity and at this point signorina caporale told me the story of the six thousand lire i have already mentioned and how papiano got them away from her the personal troubles of this woman were interesting enough in their way but still this was not just what i had come to find out taking advantage i confess of the abnormal condition she was in perhaps from a sip of wine too much at dinner i ventured a leading question but why did you ever risk giving him the money signorina why and she clenched her fists because i wanted to show him two mean things one meaner than the other i wanted him to understand that i knew what he really wanted from me and his wife was still living too ah i see and just imagine the woman continued gathering spirit in her narrative poor rita that was his wife's name yes rita adriana's sister in bed for two whole years hanging between life and death you can't imagine whether i but anyway they all know how i acted and adriana knows too that's why she is so fond of me really fond of me poor thing and what is the fix i have been left in why i've even had to give up my piano which for me was well everything you understand oh not just because i'm a teacher my piano was my whole life i could write music as a girl there at the conservatory and i did a number of songs afterwards when i had finished my course well as long as i had my piano 
i could still compose or not for publication of course just for myself i would sit down and improvise and sometimes i would get so worked up i don't know what it was it was as though something were coming right out of my soul and i couldn't stand it i would almost faint away i became part of my instrument and it of me so that i could hardly feel my fingers touching the keys it was the weeping and the sorrowing of my own heart why judge for yourself one evening a crowd gathered under my windows i was alone at home with mother there on the second floor where we lived and the people clapped and cheered and cheered and clapped i was afraid but my dear signorina i said comfortingly if a piano is all you need couldn't we hire one i should enjoy hearing you play ever so much and if you will allow me no she interrupted what could i do with it now it's all over with me i can bang off a popular song in the cabarets perhaps but that's all did papiano never promise to make good the money you gave him i ventured again edging back toward the subject that most concerned me that man the woman exclaimed scornfully who would ever expect him to i never asked it back from him to begin with but now he is talking of doing so oh yes now he'll give it all back to me provided provided i help him that's it he wants me to help him no one will do but me do you know he actually had the face to make the proposition to me in so many words what proposition how could you help him with another dirty trick he has in mind don't you understand i'm sure you can guess Adri miss paleari i gasped exactly i am to bring her around to it you see i around to marrying him what else and do you know why because the poor girl has or at least ought to have a dowry of some fifteen thousand lira the money from her sister's dowry that is which he is legally bound to return to anselmo paleari at once because rita died without children you see i don't know what he's done with it but he has asked for a year's time to pay it back so now he is hoping that Shh, here comes adriana taciturn distracted more distant and shy than ever adriana came out to join us bowing to me with a slight nod of recognition and putting her arm around miss caporale's waist after what i had just learned i felt a flash of anger at seeing her so submissive and compliant to the odious intrigues of the rascal who was plotting her capture but i had little time to indulge such a wholesome emotion before long papiano's brother moving more like a ghost than like a real man stole out upon the balcony here he is said sylvia nudging adriana the little girl half closed her eyes and drew up her lips in a bitter smile then with an angry toss of her head she withdrew into the house good night mr mays said she i must be going he's watching her the caporale woman whispered with a significant nod in the boy's direction but what is miss paleari afraid of i could not help asking in my increasing irritation and disgust doesn't she understand that such conduct on her part gives him a stronger hold over her may i be frank signorina i have the greatest envy and admiration for people who are interested in life and play the game with gusto if i had to choose between the bully and the person who lets himself be bullied without protest why i would side with the bully the caporale woman noted the feeling with which i spoke and she answered with just a trace of irony in her voice well why don't you start a rebellion i yes you you she challenged openly now looking me sarcastically in the eye what have i to do with all this i replied i could protest in only one way by giving up my room and clearing out well the woman rejoined with a shrewd thrust that may be the one thing adriana doesn't want 
She doesn't want me to go away. The piano teacher twirled her bedraggled handkerchief round and round in the air, finally winding it up into a ball around her thumb. You can never tell. I shrugged my shoulders. Well, I... I'm going to dinner, I exclaimed, and I left her standing there without another word. To strike while the iron was hot, I stopped that very evening, on going along the hallway, in front of the trunk where Scipione Papiano was coiled in his usual style. Excuse me, I began, can't you find some other place to sit? You're in my way just here. The boy looked blankly up at me out of his sleepy eyes, but did not seem at all embarrassed. Did you hear what I said, I continued, shaking him by the arm. He sat there as stolid as a stone. However, a door opened at the end of the corridor. It was Adriana. I wonder, signorina, I now said, can't you get this poor boy to understand that he might choose some other place to sit? He's not well, said Adriana, trying to soften the situation. All the more reason for moving, I countered. The air is not so very good here. And besides, sitting on a trunk. Shall I speak to your brother about it? No, no, Adriana protested hurriedly. I'll see him about it myself. You understand, I am sure, I added. I'm not so much of a king yet that I need a watchman to guard my door. From that moment I lost all control over myself. I began to compromise Adriana's timidity overtly, forcing her hand, as it were, but at any rate closing my eyes to consequences, recklessly surrendering to the feelings in possession of me. The poor dear little house-mother. At first she did not know what to make of it, vacillating apparently between hope and fear. She could not trust me wholly as yet, divining that anger more than anything else was at the bottom of my changed behaviour. But at the same time she realised that her fear hitherto had been based on the secret and almost unconscious hope of not losing me. And now my sudden self-assertion, strengthening the hope, prevented her from surrendering quite to the fear. This delicate and affecting perplexity of hers, this modest reserve on her part, kept me from clarifying issues entirely in my own mind, and brought me to persist more tenaciously still in the combat Papiano and I had now tacitly agreed to wage with one another. I had expected the fellow to confront me the very next morning after my brush with his brother and have done with his usual compliments and ceremony. But no, he gave ground. He at once removed his brother from the outpost in front of my door, and even went so far as to twit Adriana about her embarrassment in my presence. You mustn't judge my little sister too harshly, Mr. Mays. She's as shy as a little nun when strangers are around. This unexpected retreat and the brazen unconcern of the man quite disconcerted me. What was he driving at, anyway? One evening I saw him come home in company with an individual who entered the house striking his cane noisily on the floor, as though he were walking in felt shoes and were anxious to be sure his feet were working well. Where is this dear relative of mine? Dova calesto me car parent. He began vociferating in a high-pitched Piedmontese dialect, not bothering to remove from his head the large broad-brimmed hat that was pressed down over his watery half-opened eyes, nor from his mouth a short-stemmed pipe over which he seemed bent on broiling a nose redder than that of Miss Sylvia Caporale. Dova calesto me carparent. Here he is, said Papiano, waving a hand in my direction. Then turning toward me, he said, a surprise for you, Signor Adriano. Let me introduce Mr. Francesco Meis, a relative of yours, from Turin. A relative of mine, I gasped in bewilderment. The man, evidently half-drunk, closed his eyes entirely now, 
raised a paw much as a bear might do and stood there waiting for me to grasp it. I did not disturb the pose for some seconds, meantime looking at him fixedly. What's the joke you are trying on me now? I then inquired. A joke? Why a joke? answered Papiano. Mr. Francesco Meis assured me that you and he... Cousins, the visitor volunteered to help out. Cousin, tutti Meisi soma parent. All the Meises belong to the same family. I am sorry, I have never had the pleasure of setting eyes on you before, I protested. That's one on you, the man exclaimed. O ma costa cale bella. That's the very reason why I came to have a look at you. Meis? From Turin, I pretended to ponder. But I am not from Turin. How is that? Papiano interrupted. Didn't I understand you to say that you lived in Turin till you were ten years old? Why, of course, the stranger interposed, apparently offended that so much fuss was being made over a point so simple. Cousin, cousin, what's his name here? Papiano, Terenzio Papiano. Yes, Terenziano. Terenziano told me your father went to America. But what's that mean? It means you are the son of old Uncle Tony. Barba Antoni. Yes, sir. He went to America. And so we are cousins. Nui soma cousin. But my father's name was Paolo. Antoni. No, Paolo, Paolo, Paolo. Do you think you know more about that than I do? The man shrugged his shoulders and stretched the corners of his mouth into a broad smile, rubbing meantime a four days growth of grey beard on his chin. I thought it was Antonio. But it may be as you say. I shouldn't dare contradict you, for I never knew him myself. The poor fellow, having the advantage over me that I well knew, might have stood his ground. But he seemed to be content so long as we were cousins. His father, he further exclaimed, was a Francesco like himself, and a brother of the Antonio, or rather of the Paolo, who had gone off to America from Turin at a time when he, Francesco Mei's second, was still a boy, Ancor Masna, of seven. Having lived all his life away from home, a little job in the government service, he was not very well acquainted with the old folks, whether on his father's or his mother's side. But we were cousins, of that there could be no doubt. But you must have known Grandpa, surely, I decided mischievously to ask. Yes, he had known Grandpa. He could not remember whether at Pavia or at Piacenza. Oh, really? What did he look like? Look like? Why, uh, I can't quite say. That was some thirty years ago. A son passa trant'anni. The fellow did not seem to be acting in bad faith. I took him rather for a poor devil who was drowning his soul in wine in order to escape some of the worries of poverty and loneliness. He stood there with head lowered and eyes closed, approving all the things I said to corner him. I am sure that I could have told him we had been to school together and that I had given him a thrashing once, and he would still have remembered, so long as I admitted that we were cousins. On that point he refused to compromise. So cousins we remained. But suddenly, on looking at Papiano and catching an expression of gloating on his face, I lost my desire for further jesting. I bade the drunken man good afternoon with a caro parente, fixing my eyes upon Papiano's with the idea of convincing him that I was not to be trifled with by such as he. Will you be so good, I asked, as to tell me where you unearthed that crazy idiot? Oh, I'm so sorry, the rascal answered. I must admit he was a man of extraordinary resourcefulness. I can see that I was not altogether happy in my... On the contrary, you are always most happy in your guesses, I exclaimed. 
No, I mean, I was mistaken in thinking you might be glad to see him. But believe me, it was such a strange coincidence. You see, here is how it happened. I had to go to the tax office this morning, on a matter of business for the Marquis, my employer. While I was there, I suddenly heard someone calling, Mr. Mace, Mr. Mace. I turned around, of course, thinking it was you, and supposing you were there on some matter where my influence might be of use to you. It is always at your disposal, you understand. But no, it was this crazy idiot, as you so well call him. And I, out of idle curiosity, went up to him and asked him if his name were really Mace, and where he came from, since I had the honour of knowing a Mr. Mays who was a guest in my home. Well, he said that you were a cousin of his, and insisted on coming home with me to make your acquaintance. There you have the whole story. All this happened at the revenue office. Yes, the man works there, assistant collector or something. Could I believe this cock-and-bull yarn? I made up my mind to investigate it. And it proved to be true. But it was equally true that Papiano, with all his suspicions of me, was meeting my frontal attack upon his secret manoeuvres in his home, by retreating, evading, slipping around me, to delve into my past and finally assail me from the rear. Knowing the man as I did, I had every reason to fear that with his keen scent he could not long fail to find a clue, and that once on the right track he would never depart from it till he stood on the bank of the Miranio Millflume, with the bloated body of the late Mattia Pascal in front of him. Imagine then my terror when, a few days later as I was reading in my room, there came to my ears from the corridor a voice, a voice from the other world, but one still vivid in my memory. Perhaps I thank God, Signore, that I rid myself of her. The Spaniard, my Spaniard, the pudgy little man in the big beard who had hooked onto me at Monte Carlo and followed me to Nice where we had quarrelled because I would not play partners with him as he wanted. God of heaven! The trail at last! That devil of a Papiano had finally found it! I jumped to my feet, grasping the edge of the table in order not to collapse in the sudden anguished horror that seized upon my heart. Stupefied, my knees a-tremble, I stood there and listened, determined to run away the moment Papiano and the Spaniard, it was he, there was no mistaking his voice and his broken Spanish-Italian, got through the hallway. Run away? In the first place, supposing Papiano, on coming in, had asked the servant whether I were at home, how would he interpret my flight in that case? And in the second place, let's think this all the way out now. They knew my name was Adriano Meis, but what else could the Spaniard know about me? He had seen me at Monte Carlo. Well, had I ever told him there that my name was Mattia Pascal? Perhaps. I could not remember. I happened to be standing in front of my mirror, as though someone had set me just there on purpose. I looked at myself in the glass. Ah, yes, that crooked eye of mine, that blessed cock-eye. By that he would recognize me. But how on earth had Papiano ever gotten back to my adventure in Monte Carlo? That was what surprised me more than anything else. What could I do about it, meantime? Nothing, obviously. I should have to wait for what was going to happen to happen. And nothing happened. Though I did not recover from my fright even after Papiano on the evening of that very day in explaining to me the mystery of that incomprehensible and terrifying visit showed me clearly that he was not really on my track at all, but that fortune simply, after the many extraordinary turns with which she had favoured me, had now done me another in suddenly setting across my path again that Spaniard who very probably had forgotten that I ever existed. 
from what papiano told me of the fellow i saw that i could hardly have missed him at monte carlo since he was a gambler by profession but how strange that i should be meeting him now in rome or rather that coming to rome i should have hit upon one of the very houses to which he had entrance certainly if i had had nothing to be afraid of the curious coincidence would not have impressed me so strongly how often in fact do we come unexpectedly upon people whom we have met elsewhere by merest chance in any event he had or thought he had very good reasons for coming to rome and to papiano's house the fault was mine or at least of that chain of circumstances which had caused me to shave off my beard and change my name some twenty years earlier the marquis giglio dauletta the man whom papiano was serving as a private secretary had given his only daughter in marriage to don antonio pantogada an attache of the spanish embassy to the holy see not long after the wedding pantogada along with some members of the roman aristocracy had been arrested in a raid made by the police one night upon a gambling-house in the city this had occasioned his recall to madrid where he had committed the other indiscretions perhaps worse than this one which had finally brought about his dismissal from the diplomatic service of his country from that moment the marquis dauletta had not had a moment's rest from constant demands for money made upon him by his profligate son-in-law pantogada's wife had died four years before leaving a daughter about fifteen years old whom the marquis had taken to live with him knowing only too well the kind of environment her father would have provided for her pantogada had at first refused to give the girl up but finally he had yielded under pressure of money to pay his debts now he was continually raising the question again and in fact had come to rome for the purpose of taking his daughter in other words a round sum of money away with him he could be sure that the marquis would make any sacrifice rather than see his dear grandchild pepita fall into her father's hands papiano rose to heights of holy wrath in his denunciation of such a cowardly piece of blackmail and i am sure he was quite sincere in it all he had one of those ingenious contrivances for a conscience which permitted him to howl in all honesty at the evil others do while still without the least discomfort allowing him to work an almost similar game upon his own father-in-law paleari however on this occasion the marquis giglio was holding out it was evident that pantogada would be detained in rome for some time and hence come frequently to visit terenzio papiano with whom he got on famously how could i help meeting him sooner or later what could i do again i consulted my looking-glass and i saw in it the face of the late mattia pascal peering at me with his crooked eye from the surface of the miragno mill-flume and addressing me as follows what a mess you are in adriano meis be honest now tell the truth you are afraid of terenzio papiano and you would like to put the blame on me on me again just because when i was in nice one day i had a little squabble with a spaniard well i was right wasn't i as you very well know and do you think you can get out of it by obliterating the last trace of me from your face do so my dear mr meis follow the advice of miss sylvia caporale call in dr ambrosini and have your eye put in place again then well then you'll see end of section twelve